Have you ever wondered what makes someone a big name author? It is easy to tell whether someone has a big name. Just look at the font size of their name on the cover. You look at the cover of a Brandon Sanderson or Stephen King book, the author's name is bigger than the title of the book, or at least it's very big. But be careful. Boosting the font size of your name won't make you a big name author any more than buying an expensive tie will make you a billionaire. Sure, billionaires wear expensive ties, but correlation is not causation. So how do you become a big name author? How do you become the kind of author whose name is more important to a book's sales than the book's title? Find out in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a living with writing worth talking about. This episode is for both indie and traditional authors, published and unpublished, fiction and nonfiction. It also has one of our special marketing psychology tags. This, this is a marketing psychology episode. Now, I should say the term big name is relatively new. I think it goes back to the early days of Hollywood. The old words for the same concept are gravitas, authority, and if you go back far enough, ethos. So what is ethos? It's a Greek word used by Aristotle, who saw communication as containing three core elements. Logos, which is your message, the logic and power of your reasoning. Pathos, which is your emotional resonance with the audience. And ethos, your authority, credibility, and power as a speaker. All three of these elements are important for both marketing and good writing. and They're all connected and they all deserve their own episodes. But today we're gonna to be focusing on ethos, which is how to build your credibility. And this is not just a matter of being well-known. It also has to do with being well-liked and well-respected. In this way, your ethos is also your brand. If you've ever wondered how marketing psychology and branding overlap, this episode will tell you all about it. In many ways, credibility is about perception. There's a big difference between being seen as credible and actually being credible. In the eyes of strangers, there's no difference between reality and the perception of reality. But if you want to build ethos ethically, you need to start with reality. And that means internal credibility. Internal credibility is the credibility that comes from who you are and how you present yourself. So here are some tips on how you can develop your internal credibility and start building that all-powerful ethos. The first tip is to keep an eye on the all-important appearance. There's an old Latin phrase, vestis virum reddit, which uh, translates to the clothes make the man. If you want people to take you seriously, you need to dress like the stereotype of someone they would trust in your area of expertise. This is why doctors wear special costumes. People are more likely to take the advice of a doctor who's wearing a lab coat than a doctor in street clothes. The advice and the doctor can be the same. The only difference is the clothes, and yet it still makes a difference. So some tips here are to dress appropriately for the brand you want to convey, especially when you're around readers. This doesn't mean that you should wear a suit and tie all the time. Doesn't mean you should have a suit and tie in your headshot. 
it's not about dressing in a specific way or to an absolute standard. It's about dressing in a way that supports your brand. If your book is a Victorian romance, you'll want to dress differently than if it's a workout book. <laughs> uh, you also want to invest in high quality brand consistent headshots. And I've got an episode all about getting good headshots that I'll link to in the show notes of this episode. And another thing I would include in this Vestis Virum Reddit principle is to invest in a professional microphone and camera for Zoom calls or any online presentations that you might do. Nothing says amateur like wearing a gaming headset or worse, the built-in camera and microphone on your laptop. <laughs> a very inexpensive way for people to take you serious is to have a serious microphone that you're talking into. Uh, another element of internal credibility is vocabulary. This has to do with the effective use of jargon. Readers or people that you talk to don't need to understand every word you say if you're trying to establish your credibility. They need to understand what you're saying, but they don't have to understand every single word. I learned this back when I ran a web development agency. Every time we submitted an invoice to a big corporation, they had someone on staff whose job it was to push back on the line items on the bill to try to save some money for the company. And I realized that these bookkeepers were not very technical people. And the more technical the line item was, the less they pushed back on them. If a time log said something like, wrote a Perl script parsing HTTPS calls from HTTP calls on the database, three hours, we would never get pushback. But if the line item said something like bug fixes, we would often get pushback. So the more technical and specific we were, the less pushback we got. Jargon can be a trap, though. If you use it too much, people will have no idea what you're saying. This is the curse of knowledge, where they're convinced you know what you're saying, but since they don't know what you're saying, it has no impact. So the key is to use jargon strategically. Use the big words to establish your credibility and rely on the small words when it comes to calls for action. You want to be particularly careful here if you write nonfiction. If you sound academic, you will turn off many readers. For fiction, this can come down to appropriate research. If you have a character firing a gun in a book, make sure you have fired that gun yourself and you have the terminology correct. If your characters are going to a place in the real world, try to go to that place yourself. <laughs> Getting these little details right goes a long way in building your credibility as an author. Another way to build your credibility, especially for nonfiction, is to use specific examples. There are few phrases more powerful to building credibility than the phrase, for example. <laughs> this phrase really does enhance you as a speaker and help people believe what you are saying. If you're trying to teach something and don't have any examples of it working, you may not be ready to write a book about that thing. It's a yellow flag or maybe even a red flag that you need to do more work on your topic before you write your book. Examples are also a great way to provide context that makes what you're talking about easier to understand. This is your chance to add narratives to your nonfiction. The next element of internal credibility is character. No, not character like character in a book. Character as in your character as a person. You can undermine all of your credibility as an author with one lapse in character. Subway Jared was king of weight loss until he wasn't. He didn't lose his credibility because he gained weight. He lost his credibility because he did terrible things and wound up in jail. 
Now, this is an extreme example, but you don't need to break the law to have a breach of character. One important element to keep in mind is that right now, in America at least, we have several different moral systems. You can't follow them all. They sometimes conflict. Some readers don't care if you're having sex outside of marriage, while other readers don't care about your carbon footprint. And so when you pick a target reader, you're also picking a set of moral and ethical expectations. And if you don't want your readers to cancel you, you must conform to their moral expectations. And I talk a lot more about this in my episode, How to Survive Cancel Culture as a Writer. But the TLDR is make sure you pick a target reader who has moral expectations that you're willing to live with. (laughs) Don't pick readers who will hate you if they knew who you really were. That said, there are some moral absolutes that all readers expect you to uphold. And one of them, perhaps the most important, is honesty. If you lie to your readers, you'll never develop your ethos. Nobody likes a liar. (laughs) So the final element of internal credibility is confidence. If you don't believe in your book, no one else will either. Enthusiasm and confidence are contagious. The more confident and enthusiastic about your book you are, the more everyone else will be as well. If you're convinced that your book will really thrill someone, they are much more likely to believe you than if you're timid and cautious. And I will say, we have a whole episode on this as well. (laughs) We have a lot of episodes supporting different elements of today's topic. Now, that episode is How to Become More Confident. And yes, like the other episodes, it's linked in the show notes at authormedia.com slash 335. But I will say, confidence comes from practice. The more short stories and books you write, the more confident you will be in your writing. If you lack confidence in your book, it may be that the book is not ready. And don't forget the ninth commandment of book marketing. Thou shalt not publish thine first book first. Keep working on your craft until you can write something that you can confidently promote. This is not a time to fake it until you make it. Make it to the point where you can believe it. (laughs) Believe that your book really is good. If it's not good, get better. You can learn to become a better writer. Okay, so that's internal credibility. And I think that's enough about internal credibility. Basically, you need to be good. and You need to be honest about being good. (laughs) So now let's talk about external credibility. There's several forms of external credibility. And the first one is social proof. People like the popular thing. They want to vote for the candidate who's likely to win rather than the third-party candidate who aligns with their values. They want to root for the team they think can make it to the championship. So one great way to gain credibility is to show how you are already popular. This can be a bestseller list, the number of books you sold, your number of reviews, or many other tactics. This element of credibility is called social proof, and I could do a whole episode just on this one element. In fact, I already have. (laughs) It's titled how to make your book more popular, uh, marketing psychology, social proof. I don't want this episode to sound like a commercial for all of my other episodes, but those other episodes are, are free. So you can listen to them if you want to go deeper on any one of these elements. And I do encourage you to listen to that episode if you want to learn more about social proof. But another way to develop external credibility is with awards. People take you much more seriously once you've won a Pulitzer or Nobel Prize. Winning awards can build your credibility, but not all awards are the same. And in fact, there's a danger here, and that is that many writing contests are scams. Even many legitimate contests are pay to place. This isn't a free, 
fully meritocratic process. You have to pay money just to be considered. The biggest contests often charge publishers a submission fee of some kind. And part of the reason why they do this is to keep a publisher from just submitting all of their books. Right? That kind of breaks the contest. I've been a judge on these sorts of contests, and it's a lot of work to go through all the books. So putting some friction there isn't a bad thing, but it can make it difficult to sort the good contests from the bad contests. Because there's no simple rule like, oh, if they're charging you, obviously it's a bad contest. It's not like that. The good ones charge you and the bad ones charge you. <laughs> so uh, we have a whole episode on writing contests and writing awards. I'll link to in the show notes. And I also keep a list of credible writing contests on authormedia.social in the celebrations boards. We have a spot on our social network, authormedia.social, where you can celebrate an accomplishment like launching a book or winning an award. And we have a list of approved awards. So if the award that you're wanting to compete for is listed in that list, you can trust that it's a good award. If it's not listed in that list, leave a comment and we will research it and get back to you. So occasionally people will comment be like, hey, what about this award? We'll research it and we'll either add it or we won't. When in doubt, ask your target reader if he has heard of the award you're thinking about trying for. If your target readers have not heard of the award, it's probably not going to do much to boost your credibility. And along those same lines, another way to boost your external credibility is with endorsements. This is the classic way. And probably when you heard this episode, this is where your mind may have gone to first. And yes, I have a whole episode on how to get endorsements for your book. In fact, that episode comes with a special worksheet to help you keep track of all of the endorsements that you're getting for your book. That's a free worksheet that comes along with that episode. Now, the key to getting endorsements is that the person endorsing you must already have credibility with your target reader. Either that or they have a title or position that your readers respect. If a Navy SEAL endorses your workout book, the endorsement will have weight even if readers don't know that specific Navy SEAL. Just being a Navy SEAL is enough. So who do people trust the most? This is important when it comes to getting endorsements. And believe it or not, they don't trust the experts, friends, or even family the most. The voice they trust the most is their own. So one of the most popular phrases you can use in marketing is see for yourself. This is why reader magnets can be so effective and why I have at least a dozen episodes about reader magnets. Reader magnets give readers an opportunity to taste the food. It's like the samples at Costco. You taste that new cheese and suddenly you want to give that new cheese a try. Now, this only works if what you have is genuinely good. This goes back to what I was talking about earlier about developing your craft until you're confident to give away free samples. If you have only written one short story in your entire life, that's probably not the short story to give away as people's first sample. You got to practice. You got to write lots of short stories or write lots of guides to writing nonfiction. I don't care if an expert likes the new cheese. I care if I like the new cheese. So if people have experienced your writing, they've read one of your books or they've read a short story by you and they enjoyed it, suddenly no one else matters. <laughs> the experts don't matter. The number of reviews don't matter. The awards don't matter. They now are a true fan because they have tasted themselves and they have seen writing is good. See for yourself is also why it often takes many books to become a big name author. As more and more readers try out your writing, 
more and more of them come to expect it to be good. <laughs> and when they expect it to be good, they expect it to continue to be good. So each book sets the standard for the next book. Okay, so we've talked about the two kinds of credibility, internal and external, but ethos is more than just credibility. Ethos is also about power. The more powerful you are, the more ethos and authority you have. But what is power? Well, there's more than one kind of power. In business school, we learned about French and Raven's five forms of social power. I still remember the lecture teaching that worldview a decade later. <laughs> and I will say, as a parent, I've learned a sixth form of power that my teachers didn't tell me about. So I'm going to explain, I'm going to go through each one of these forms of power and talk about how you can use them as an author. And I'm going to have an example of each of these forms of power based off of a character from Star Trek, <laughs> because this is my podcast. If I want to work in Star Trek characters, I can. So let's start with coercive power. Coercive power is the use of threats or punishment to compel someone to buy your book. Our Star Trek example here of coercive power would be Lieutenant Worf, the scary looking Klingon. He is the one who throws people in the brig for bad behavior. And you may think that this form of power is not used to sell books, but it is. In fact, you measure in dollars, more books are sold using coercive power than any other kind of power. It doesn't sell the most books by unit, but it sells the most dollars worth of books. How, you may ask? One word, textbooks. <laughs> if you don't buy the textbook, you can't do all the homework and you get punished with bad grades. Bad grades affect your scholarships and make school more expensive. Schools and universities drive as much in book sales as the rest of the industry combined. This is not because they sell more books, but because they charge so much for the books they sell. When you can use threats to compel people to buy your book, you can charge whatever you want for it. While most books at the bookstore cost between $10 and $35, I remember spending as much as $350 on a textbook when I was in college, and I'm sure they're even more expensive now. I find this form of power distasteful. So it's actually the one I'm not going to really talk about. If you want to use coercive power, you can figure out how to do it on your own. <laughs> so let's move on to the next form of power, reward power. While coercive power is about making threats, reward power is about making promises. If we go back to Star Trek, our example would be Quark, the big-eared Ferengi. He is the guy who will pay a bribe to motivate behavior. One common way for authors to use reward power is to offer a launch bonus. Something like, everyone who buys my book in the first two weeks gets these bonus prizes. And a classic example of this is Gary Vee, who recently sold one million copies of his book by giving away NFTs to everyone who purchased at least 12 copies of the paper book within a certain amount of time. So he did very well by rewarding his readers to buy his book. I don't recommend NFTs as a strategy you should use, but I do think giving a reward of some kind would work well. And that reward ideally is something that doesn't cost you very much to give and yet has a lot of value to the person receiving it. So free access to a course, a webinar, so maybe you go and collect reader magnets or short stories from authors who write similar fiction. There's a lot of things that you can do here, and uh, we have a whole session on it in the book launch blueprint. A whole day is focused just on this sort of strategy. Reward power is more than just about 
book launch rewards. It's also why reader magnets work so well, right? Give me your email address and I will reward you with this free short story. The next form of power is what's called legitimate power or what my professors called position power. This is the power of the boss, baron or bishop. Legitimate power often contains elements of both coercive and reward power, but with something extra. Your boss can punish and reward you, but by being placed inside of a hierarchy, it makes that power greater than the sum of its parts. In Star Trek, I would say the person who represents legitimate power is First Officer William T. Riker, the guy with the beard. He has a position, and his position gives him authority. As an author, certain titles or positions can give you a great deal of credibility. Anyone can write a book about business management, but if you're the CEO of Tesla, more people will want to read the book because of your position. This is also why publishers are so quick to point out if an author has ever graced a bestseller list of some kind. Not all positions are helpful for readers, though. Readers are suspicious of PhD authors, especially for nonfiction. Most readers of trade paperbacks don't want to read academic writing. That style of writing is very off-putting. It's why most dissertations don't get published. So you have to be careful which of your titles you present on your book. And a lot of it, again, depends on your target reader. Would your target reader be turned on or turned off by your PhD? Ask and find out. The next kind of power is expert power. Often sitting somewhat outside of a social hierarchy is the expert. This is the power of the mechanic, the electrician, and the doctor. In Star Trek, this would be Dr. Beverly Crusher. She is the one person on the ship who can relieve the captain of duty. Now, I will say the word expert is overused right now. Journalists have started citing unnamed experts anytime they're wanting to just share their own opinions. So in journalism, we were always told when I took journalism class years ago that you're supposed to keep your own opinions out of the article. And lately, they have found a workaround where if you just name quote-unquote experts without naming any of them specifically, you can put your voice through the mouth of these unnamed experts. But even though journalists do that, which I think is a bad practice, that doesn't mean that expertise isn't still real. (laughs) When your air conditioner is broken, you need an air conditioner expert to come and fix it. And so expertise is still important, especially for nonfiction. Readers don't buy nonfiction books from authors. They buy nonfiction books from experts. They need to believe that you are an expert. True expertise is not about degrees or certifications. It's about results. Yes, degrees and certifications help, but really, people want results. True expertise is about actual knowledge. If the machine is broken, we don't care about your degrees. We want to know if you can fix it. So if your book is about helping people with something, you need to help people with that thing as you write your book to make sure your ideas work. This connects with what I was talking about earlier about having examples to share. If you are truly an expert and you've been helping people with the thing that you're talking about, you'll have lots of examples to share. This is why pastors outsell parishioners. The act of being a pastor helps develop expertise more than the act of sitting in the pew. If you're writing a religious book, you need to get out of the pews and start practicing what you plan to put in your book. It doesn't mean you have to be a pastor. And the same, as I would say, is also true for psychologists or counselors, lawyers. You know, If you're practicing 
case law and you're dealing with a certain kind of case all the time, and then you write a book about it, you're going to have a lot of examples you can share. And the common practice is to anonymize the story. This is especially true for psychologists. They can't violate the privilege of the counseling room, but they can share an anonymized version of the story where they'll change the name and some of the facts, but it still has the power of being an example. Another element of expertise, though, is not just about practicing what you preach, but it's also about being well-read, being a scholar. (laughs) Have you read all of the competing books on your topic? Do you know who the most prominent voices are, and what do you agree with, and what do you disagree with? It's important to have positions there where you know where you agree and disagree with the other voices on your topic. Okay, now it's time for the final form of social power, referent power. Referent power is the power of personality. This is the power of Gandhi and your grandmother. Gandhi had no position. He had no ability to reward or punish, and he wasn't much of an expert. And yet, he had the power to challenge an empire. Going back to our Star Trek example, this would be Captain Picard. One of the things I like about Captain Picard is that he operates out of referent power more than position power. His crew does what he says because they love him and because they trust him. Yes, he is the boss, but he rarely pulls rank or resorts to threats or promises. And Spock, actually, is very similar, come to think of it. So how do you develop referent power as an author? This is by far the most useful power you can have as an author. Well, you do it by blessing and serving your readers. That's it. This goes back to the very first commandment of book marketing. Love thy reader as much as you love thy book. So specifically, what does that look like? Well, that takes us to the second commandment of book marketing, and that is, thou shalt write for thy reader, not for thyself. I like to call your target reader Timothy. This is inspired by a book in the Bible that was written for a specific person and yet had broad appeal. Get to know your Timothy in real life so you can find out what kind of book he has been longing to read. Then write that book. (laughs) Ask him what kinds of awards he thinks are credible. Authors with referent power write books for their readers rather than trying to find readers for their books. This is the secret of becoming a big name author. Or put another way, readers will love you because you first loved them. You can't trick them into loving you. You can't threaten them into giving you referent power. You have to earn it, and you earn it through love. There are other places where you can develop referent power. You don't just do it inside the book. You can also do it outside the book. You could do it through podcasting, public speaking, blogging, videos, a helpful website, and yes, even social media. (laughs) And I have links to all of those topics. They're all categories of uh, blog posts and episodes at authormedia.com. But let me give you a warning about social media. There are two old sayings that you need to keep in mind here. The first is familiarity breeds contempt. And the second is out of sight, out of mind. You want to be near your readers, but not too familiar. So be careful about posting pictures of your lunch on social media. Your best friend might care, but your readers do not. Whatever you post online, make it interesting to your reader. You don't need to use social media. In fact, I think for most authors, it's a mistake. But if you do, This is the only path to success, is to use social media to bless your readers, where it's more about them than it is about you. 
Okay, so we've talked about French and Raven's five forms of power. There is a sixth power, fiat power, that is a true power nonetheless. And I discovered this power when I became a parent. When a newborn needs a new diaper, but doesn't want a diaper change, none of these five social powers help. Threats and promises are as useless as my title as dad. <laughs> my babies didn't care if I was an expert diaper changer. So what did I do? I picked them up and changed their diaper anyway. <laughs> if the baby kicked too much, I'd grab the ankles and lift them higher so the baby's hips were off the changing pad. This way, the baby had no leverage to kick into the dirty diaper. Fiat power is the physical power of handcuffs, grizzly bears, and concrete walls. It is your power over your own body. Fiat power is tricky to use in marketing. The primary form it takes is handing people free copies of your book. But as the old adage goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Giving out free copies to strangers must be done in a very specific way so as not to be a complete waste of money. <laughs> if you're not careful, all you're doing is putting books out into the world that you then are starting to compete against. That person donates the book to a used bookstore who then lists it on for sale on Amazon for $2, and you've just stolen a sale from yourself from someone who did want to pay for your book. You don't want that. But handing out free copies of your book can be an incredibly effective method. And I have a whole episode to walk you through exactly how to do this. It's called How to Boost Book Sales with Advanced Reader Copies. In Star Trek, the character that most closely represents fiat power is Q, who is continually perplexed that despite his godlike powers, he can rarely get people to do what he wants them to do. So fiat power is not a good power <laughs> to use in most situations. Although when dealing with a newborn, it's the only one available because all of the other powers rely on language in one way or another. And if you're dealing with a baby who doesn't know English, you got to rely on fiat power. <laughs> Just use it for good and not for evil. All right, so we've talked about credibility, both internal and external. We've talked about power. The final element of becoming a big name author is trust. Ultimately, readers trust big name authors to give them what they expect to get. The name means something. So how do you make your name mean something? Well, you're not going to like the answer, <laughs> but the first part of it is focus. Pick a specific kind of reader and then thrill that reader. Usually this means sticking to a narrow flavor profile of genres. If you write sci-fi, you might be able to get away with writing fantasy because those genres overlap but you wouldn't be able to get away with writing contemporary romance. Too far away, too much of a different reader. Most big-name authors become big-name authors because the name of the author becomes a micro-genre of its own. This isn't a, just a horror book. This is a Stephen King horror book. And that means something. Now, interestingly, what that means is most people are like, no, I don't like Stephen King. I don't like the kind of books he writes, and they run away. But enough people say, yes, I love Stephen King. I love that kind of horror book that they do want to buy it enough to make him a number one New York Times bestselling author over and over again. <laughs> so that focus is really powerful. The second element of building trust with your readers is consistency. Once you focus on who your reader is and what he wants, the next step is to thrill him 
consistently. This means writing books frequently enough where he doesn't forget who you are. It means maintaining or improving, which is even better, I would say, the quality of the writing. Sometimes an author will spend 10 years on that first book and making it a masterpiece, and then they crank out the second one really fast. And the second book is of a much lower writing quality, has a much lower level of polish. That's not how you become a big name author. The other element of consistency that's important is preserving your voice as an author. You can develop it, you can grow it, but you must preserve it. It needs to become more of what it is. If you can discipline yourself to focus your writing and to publish consistently, you are well on your way to becoming a big name author. Now, this will mean dying to yourself a little bit because you want to write everything you want to write. And that's okay. You can write whatever you want to write. It's a free country, but it won't make you a big name author. It'll make you a jack of all trades type author because the more variety that you add to your writing, the less your name means anything in specific. The more you focus, the more your voice is distinct, the more your name means something, and the more it means, the more it's worth giving font treatment on the cover. So we've talked about internal and external credibility, power, and trust. And one thing you may notice that all three of these elements have in common is that they all require work. But remember, a strong ethos is what gets you a standing ovation as you walk up to the stage. It's what gets people to trust you with their email addresses and with their money. And most of all, with their precious time. They will live their whole lives and die and never get back the time they spent reading your book. So they need to trust you enough with that very precious gift. Developing your ethos is worth it. If you're wanting more help with being persuasive, not just in developing your credibility, but in all of the elements of persuasion, I have a course, The Art of Persuasion. We'll walk you through step-by-step in very short, focused, easy video lessons, how you can be more persuasive. This is beneficial for anyone wanting to sell their books, but it's particularly beneficial for bloggers, nonfiction writers, and authors who want to make a difference with their writing. Our featured patrons are all of our new patrons in July, which is Luther Dixon, Bobby Graffunder, Brian Lawrence, and Red Ink Press. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast helping us stay on the air. I really appreciate it. And if you would like to become a patron, you can find out more at authormedia.com slash patron. And a quick family update. Jack, our youngest, is now officially crawling. He finally figured it out. (laughs) After many, many weeks of trial and error, he can now move from one room to another. And he's so happy to be crawling. And what's interesting is that while he uses his new powers to move to where the action is. If everyone's in a room he's not, he'll crawl into the room to be a part of the fun. But he's also using it to explore all of the corners of our house. And I didn't really realize it, but when you're a little baby and all you can do is sit, you always get put in the middle of the room. He has always been curious about the corners of the room. (laughs) So he's crawling all over, exploring. He's also trying to put our vacuum out of business by eating everything on the floor. The only thing more appetizing to a seven-month-old than a Cheerio is a Cheerio covered in dust and aged under the couch. Apparently, it's like some kind of fine wine or fine cheese where the Cheerio gets better with age. I think it's also the way to get him to eat his vegetables. Just put it under the couch and let it dry out. He'll want to eat it. (laughs) But anyway, 
Uh, he is very much happy to be crawling, and I've got a very cute photo of him in the show notes at authormedia.com slash 335. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. Our producer is Laurie Christine. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt, and the blog post version is crafted by Shauna Lettler. To read the blog post version of this episode, visit authormedia.com slash 335. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.